You're listening to the film podcast about indie filmmaking and big budget films with award-winning filmmaker Craig Newland. And welcome to another episode of the film podcast. And back with us is Jennifer Zhang. Welcome back to the film podcast, Jennifer. Thank you. Good to be back. Well, we're going to be looking at Pip Torrens. I thought he's a really good one to have as a replay. And we can sort of break down some of the segments of what he does say. And one of the first things he's going to be talking about is auditioning for a role. And I don't think it matters whether it's a small independent film or whether it's a a bigger film. You sort of go through the same processes, don't you? From an actor's point of view, it can be a little bit excruciating. Oh, absolutely excruciating. And then it's it's a hell that repeats itself. It's very Sisyphusian or whatever they call Sisyphusian. it. Sisyphusian. Right. It's ro- rolling that damn boulder up the hill. Being in LA, most of my friends are actors. So it's just audition after audition and rejection after rejection. And I always say like a nice little tangential business to show business is, of course, like how much business therapists drum up from from the broken people that come out of this this machine. You know, it's the waiting, I think, which really is the most difficult part. And Pip talks about the process after he auditioned and the waiting for the yes or the no. My agent at the time kept saying, no, they like you, they like you, you know, they haven't decided. And this is a situation which as a character actor or a supporting actor I'd, I'd been in before on large projects where it's quite possible that they like you, they'll pencil you in, as it were. But what they're really doing is juggling the principal actors and finding out who's going to work with who. And it can come down to quite banal differences. It's not that Claire Foy wasn't the first choice. I think she probably was for the Queen. It's not that Matt Smith wasn't the first choice for, for Philip. And likewise, it's just that these choices have to be balanced. And that's where someone like Nina, the casting director, is so incredibly skillful. I waited and waited and waited. And then it was all confirmed. And that was very interesting. And then went along and started having meetings. And at that stage, it was it was exciting because it was a big project. But you have to remember that five years ago, Netflix was not the kind of colossal behemoth it is now. It was something that we were all a bit curious about. And I remember in the early read-throughs, there was a sort of pause and someone said to Peter Morgan, you know, Peter, you know, this isn't going out on a terrestrial platform. So we saw, you know, people are going to see this. And he then gave us a sort of potted lecture on the evolution of, uh, of Netflix and how it was expanding exponentially, which we, we kind of took with a slight pinch of salt. <laughs> you know, it then became clear that he was right. Just imagine going up for the crown and having to wait before you're notified to say, yes, you're definitely in. Mm-hmm. And and the other thing that I don't know that he's explicitly mentioned, but there are like multiple auditions before. It's like, a, it's like an elimination game for like the bigger parts like this. Hunger Games. Yeah, that's <laughs> for actors, exactly. You have to make it through to the next round. And another thing that can happen to a director with actors, especially when you've workshopped with an actor, is an actor changing the performance from the workshop to shooting the scene. And I'm reminded of an actor with limited experience who I cast in a feature film. And there was a particular style because the film was a period set in the 1960s. So in the workshop, we worked on the performance, which I got to tell you really blew me away with just how good this person nailed it. And then when we got to the shoot day and you see the call sheet, 
that has this scene on it for the day, you think, oh, that's really great. We're going to capture what we workshopped, which I was pretty excited. So the actor comes in. I said, okay, let's do this rehearsal. Let's rehearse it first before we shoot it. And to my amazement, I was seeing a performance that was completely different to the workshop. All of the nuances that we had created were all out the window. Of course, you don't want to spook an actor by saying, what the hell are you doing? The worst thing you could do, they're already in their head as it is. Once they're spooked, really, you could lose everything. (laughs) If If you handle that the wrong way, then that's going to cost you real time. You're going to actually have to step off set with the actor and just sort of calm them down and then bring them back on to set. So, no, you don't say, what the hell are you doing? You work (laughs) through it. And so that's what I did, sort of work through it and say, well, you know, it's slightly off from, you know, where we need it to be from what we were doing in the workshop. And he said, oh, yeah, that's right. And it sort of started to come back to him. So we went again. And the next take was worse than the first take. Oh, God. <laughs> so, so that wasn't good. But anyway, after six or seven rehearsals, we finally got there and managed to capture the scene. And he was brilliant. He was absolutely brilliant. And it came back to that whole workshopping. It was just yeah. getting it sunken back into the muscle memory and all those nuances to align and then to play it all out. Just had to get there again. It, it is drastically different when you're stepped into the world versus when you're in like a, you know, an, a nice intimate setting, like a, a room where you would workshop the scene. Coming from an acting background, one of the things that I always do is I always start out with a compliment when I work with actors when they've done a terrible take. It's like a psychological thing because you know you're dealing with a fragile emotional state because that's what they professionally have to do. So I always say, I really liked some of your choices there, but can we? (laughs) You prime them. You prime them to make the improvements, you know? Yes, Jennifer. All the directors are saying, yes, we all do that. (laughs) Exactly. Interesting. Instead of, oh, terrible, awful. (laughs) Yeah. Those directors that are saying terrible, uh, they don't get to make a second, third, fourth film. It's all over at that stage. How about table reads? Have you been associated with table reads? Tons of them lately. Honestly, Mm -hmm. um, because of COVID, with every project stalled out, it was interesting that table reads was one way for people who were working on developing projects to feel like there was forward momentum. So it just seemed like a lot of scripts that I was involved in all went through a table read stage, whereas prior to COVID, some of them might not even have gone through that, that stage. Table reads for a script are done for various reasons. And I did ask Pip Torrens, in this case, about the table read for The Crown that he was involved with being used as part of a pitch to Netflix regarding their choices for casting and the style of what Peter Morgan, the writer, was going for. Yes, those table reads were quite interesting. I'd sort of workshopped scripts in the early stages. I mean, I went in and did a couple of days on the Benedict Cumberbatch movie about Alan Turing. What was that called? I can't remember. The imitation game. Imitation game, exactly. And that's interesting. So, the, you know, and any, any stage, I'm sure any film actor will tell you, any kind of rehearsal period away from the, the, the set in the weeks leading up to, to filming is going to be useful for an actor. And, and you know, ideally, you, you have a lot of sitting around and reading. But those big reads were less about, you know, no one was cast in those, in those public 
reads for execs and so on. But it was it was very much a tryout, and I think it was for Peter and and the other you know producers to to hear the thing. And and writers will always say you know it's a great great help to hear stuff. You often talk to writers at read throughs, and they say it's fantastic. I I've got more confidence in it now than before. And it's simply that you've inhabited it, if only for an hour or so, and made them hear their words, which is useful because sometimes there are quite clearly parts that don't work out loud. And, you know, even now I'll, I'll read a script and get to a, a passage that doesn't work, even if it's the night before on something. And you think, well, wait a minute, why have they written that? Because if you say it out loud, it just doesn't sound right or the adjectives are wrong or something's not quite right. So any time spent beforehand on, on vocalising and any kind of table read, whether you know you're actually moving around and blocking the thing or not, uh, is going to be very, very useful. So, putting on your director's cap, there, you you like the table read to hear the words? I do, um, and and they're also useful for people who may not have the imagination to be able to read a script and you know and be able to to picture how to be performed. So, in the cases of like financiers or you know other stakeholders. It's lovely to have a table read that they can sit in on or really see it come to life. One of the things that I like to say also is one of the best things you can do as a writer is to take an acting class for the exact reason that table reads are useful, is that if you have some basic understanding of how words on page could get performed and you can kind of perform them to yourself in your living room, you can hear the things that are wrong with it, uh, which is exactly what Pip here says is useful. With the audition, I tend to go all out because I'm recording it. I'm filming it almost like a scene. Sometimes I'll have two cameras there. I'm capturing it from (laughs) two different angles. Making sure that the cameras are well away from the actors, though. Yeah, I just find that if you're in the scene at the audition process, I just gain so much more rather than just a table read. I've seen some of the table reads that are very, very flat, and to me, it's like, I'm not going to get anything out of that. But I certainly see it from a writer's point of view to actually hear those words, because as Pip says, you can suddenly say a word and you go, oh, yeah. that doesn't sound right. That yeah. word is completely out of context. Mm-hmm. Or even the pacing of a scene, you know, to, to see it performed out. That's That I find is not just like word choice, but pacing is where you can really see on a table read when it's dragging, even if it's just actors stationary in a chair, you can still be like, oh, wow, this has gone on way too long and this dialogue is boring. That's been the best takeaways that I've gotten from table reads is like, oh, these these scenes need to be truncated. <laughs> they need to be streamlined. That's just personal experience that I, I respect also that you like to just see it, see all that come out in the audition process. That's just as useful. Well, you're actually kind of getting the same result, so long as the actor is putting their all into the table read. But there's no doubt you get you get an actor away from the table and you get them into a room and they're actually performing the scene. That yes. is something quite different to a table read. All the nuances that they are bringing into that character performance, you're actually seeing it play out in real time and then when you stop like you were saying before you say to the actor well I really liked the choices that you were taking down that road I thought that that was really great but what if we did this and then boom you start doing that and you know I mean I can spend a reasonable amount of time with an actor particularly if there's an actor that I think yeah I'm I'm probably going to cast this person I'll just push the next person coming in by 10-15 minutes 
I'll get a lot happening in that room that will tell me, particularly when that night I'm sitting down watching it on the screen and seeing everything else that I don't pick up in the room at the time of the performance. So it's easy to forget that before Netflix came along, a lot of dramas were being pulled from production and reality programming was starting to take over. Yes, you've got The Sopranos, which by far and away was one of the best things on television. Mm -hmm. And then when streaming started to take off, so too did the content genres, as Pip talks about. And then came the chance to stream this stuff, and that, and that bumped up the volume. And as you say, then this extraordinary migration of writing talent moved into television in a really big way and crucially started to create, because there was so much volume to fill, it seems to me they created a situation where, you know, character actors became really sought after and, and actors of all sorts realised that they would rather commit themselves to, you know, a 10-hour drama where you can really get into character exposition and narrative and nuanced storytelling in a way that you, you just couldn't and hadn't been able to for a long time. In the cinema, I mean, you know, the great thrillers I always think of as being either in the 40s, the noir, the noir thrillers, or the kind of parallax view, Three Days of the Condor type thrillers of the late, late 70s, when there was really original writing going on in Hollywood. And now it seems much more polarized. And it seems like the great bulk of intelligent, curious, you know, strangely flavored, almost experimental dramas moved into, into streamed content. I think that's absolutely the case because everyone saying you have to watch this show and they, they then say it's about this, I don't know, it's about a serial killing hairdresser slash undertaker or something. And it seems so niche. And then you, you look it up and you think, actually, this looks great if you like that kind of thing. And, and people tend to be very evangelical about shows. You look somebody up who you haven't seen for a while and you might be feeling a little bit sorry about you know, in a rhetorical kind of way, think what happened to that good looking guy was on that show with 15 years ago. And you, you go on IMDb and look them up. They've been out in Los Angeles or New Mexico making a show about a serial killing hairdresser or whatever for the last three years. And they're doing very nicely. Thank you. So it's, it's absolutely thrilling, this proliferation of stuff. And it's everything's kind of not mainstream. Everything has an angle to it. So for the character actor's point of view, it's great. And I think that's why people are so enthusiastic. You know, and I've just been watching um, The Queen's Gambit, which has been a big hit for Netflix. And it's fantastic. And it's so cleverly done. It's based on a very exciting novel. But they filmed it in a really terrific way. So that, you know, six hours of chess tournaments never seemed so thrilling. And it's it's just really inventive. And you know, it's an extraordinary time. It's an extraordinary time. It was a great time to be a character actor. Yeah, there was a lot packed into that clip. A lot to say and a lot to, to comment on. But... I think one of the fascinating takeaways from that is what he hints at, which is this, there's like a blurring the lines between movies and television now. Your limited mm. series, and I keep hearing this over and over again, a limited series is just a long movie. So mm. whereas you had your television actors and your television writers and your movie actors and your movie writers, and there was used to be like a very clear delineation. Now they're all kind of just mixed up together because if you're a good feature writer, you're going to be great as a limited series writer. Now you're just writing a four to six hour movie. And that's the same, same to be said about the actors. I liked what he said about actors that seem to have fallen off for like three years. And it turns out they were shooting an entire season of a limited series. And that's what they were doing. And you're like, oh, they've been busy. <laughs> I think it can't be underestimated that the streamers have saved a lot of actors' careers. 
in terms of just how busy actors are because there is so much content being streamed at the moment. And 2022, I think it's going to continue. And the, and the nicheness of it, you know, and I know that's not a word, but what he was saying where everything has got an angle, that's something that the streamers have brought into our current world of media viewing, right? You can get really, really quirky stuff. Like the serial killing hairdresser that he mentioned about. <laughs> exactly. I want to see that. Yeah, absolutely. Or like if you've watched like Pen15 as just a quick example, it's like two 30-year-old women playing 15-year-olds. That's a show that never would have made it through a, a pitch at a network, but you know, it's one of the, the most acclaimed shows on Hulu, and it's so weird. That's the thing, is that the genres are all mixed up as well. It's very hard to try and track genre now yeah. because it's just so wide and vast, and a lot of people will try and box a movie into a certain space, particularly, I suppose, in the PR and the marketing side. But if it's just streaming, if it's only for streaming, it can get the PR can be quite different to a theatrical release where the PR might be a little bit more smoke and mirrors where I think the, the streaming might be slightly different because it is accepted that genre is just so wide. And he makes the comment about the Queen's Gambit. I mean, there has never been more of an exciting time to sit down and watch chess being played <laughs> in, in this thriller genre. Yeah, like what a, what a hit. I was very proud of our society as a whole that that was such a hit. Like, oh, good for us. There's hope that this many people would be interested in a series about chess. <laughs> yeah, totally. And you take a series like The Crown, and it's all down to the words. The dialogue is what makes that show so successful. Mm -hmm. It's a gift for any actor to be handed quality material. And this is where Pip picks it up and runs with that idea. Well, as you say, it is all down to the dialogue. And I think it's testament to how brilliant and inventive, because we don't know that it was exactly like this, as with all of the crowd, but the, how brilliant Peter Morgan's writing is. And how he, I think I really benefited from the fact that he, he fixed on Tommy as a way of telling the story, as a kind of curator, narrator, keeper of the flame, you know, true believer. Who, who would always be there to, to remind everyone else of why they were there, particularly to remind the young Elizabeth of, of what she was there and why, why it was important. I think that, you know, so much of the success of a production depends on the casting. It's so often the case that actors don't quite understand how well cast they are. And they think they have to perhaps do more or learn more or try harder to make the scene convincing. And I've seen actors asking directors for direction or making suggestions. And you can see the director thinking, I cast you. I took six months to decide that you were right for this part. You don't actually have to think about anything. You just have to play the scene. And I'm, I'm saying that because Ben Miles, who plays Townsend, I think brings an extraordinary quality to that character. He, he somehow, somehow, I don't know, because I'd seen him in various things over the years, he somehow projects this absolute honesty and integrity and, you know, refusal to, to let these things get him down. But at the same time, there's something fundamentally sad about him. Anyway, I don't know, but I just felt that those characters played off each other really well. And again, it's in the writing, but, you know, Ben has less to say and do in, the, in that scene. And yet I couldn't, I don't think the scene would have worked if, if anyone else had been playing the part. Do you know what I mean? He's, he, there's something about his sort of amour propre, which is, which is totally convincing. 
just the way that he is looking at you. As you yes. say, you are doing yes. most of the dialogue, but you are looking at him, and it's the look yeah. on his face that you are reacting to, because that's yeah. what it's all about, is yeah. reactions, even though he's not saying anything. He's a great stage actor, you see. So he knows, he knows he doesn't have to do a whole lot of stuff. He knows it's all, it's all in the reaction and the response. I really like his point about actors overthinking a role because the whole point about actors, how acting is reacting and not acting in your daily life, really, you would hope that on screen, you know, an actor is able to uh, embody that in their performances, that they're not thinking and that they're, they're organically just being, inhabiting that character, right? Yeah, I think it's very frustrating for actors that get into this zone where they are just overthinking it. I think definitely in terms of backstory, the more backstory that you're able to give an actor with any role, I think that that sort of helps eliminate a lot of this overthinking because if they don't have that backstory, they can get quite creative and inventive. <laughs> and, you know, that can in itself lead to the overcomplication of what they're trying to do, you know? Yeah, that was a very diplomatic way. I like the, the, the use of the word inventive there, which is <laughs> you were very diplomatic about saying, like, they just go off from left field right? sometimes. You kind of sometimes want that in an actor, like that they get so passionate about a role that they, you know, pack a lot onto it and, and give it so much depth, like in their own mind. But you're right, if they build too much in the wrong direction, then what you get on camera is... Certainly not something that works with everyone else. <laughs> and the story is, gosh, what a complex art we're involved in. <laughs> yes. I think that some directors can make the mistake that when an actor starts to go off on a bit of a tangent, they let them run with it. Then you kind of get a little bit trapped. It's, it's always, I, I find it's much better to, let's just do it the way that we've already rehearsed it, the way that it's written. Mm -hmm. And then let's go off on a tangent if we feel we've got time and if we feel that that's in the right you know, direction. Mm -hmm. I always like playing around once we actually get the take down as per the script, yeah. then let's go for a little bit of a, a play around. Yeah. But if you don't get that nailed with what's in the script, I think often that can just be a bit of a tangled mess. It really can. And, you know, that, that throwaway take, right, or the take where you tell everyone to throw it all away, you could get good stuff out of it. In my experience, you typically don't. <laughs> you, you get maybe one or two fun things. If you're lucky, it's, it's your wild card take. But yeah, you generally want, want all, of the, all the prep work to show up when you're actually shooting it. And when they go off on that tangent, gosh, reeling that back in can be, can be an exercise. <laughs> well, it can really throw the director too, because the director is thinking, what the heck's going on? Like some directors can feel like they're being sabotaged on set by the actor. And that's not really what's happening. When you step on a set, it's amazing how the creativity in the brain can explode. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's it's interesting, right? Because you're talking about people who are stepping into a world, stepping in front of camera, stepping into a place that has a lot of production design potentially. I mean, those are unnatural circumstances. So what you get out of actors can certainly be unpredictable. It, what you get out of anybody would be unpredictable, right? You're asking them to step literally into another world and then do a job. 
So with the director, it's just a, a case of massaging somebody's ideas into the creative workflow that you want them to do to create your story out the other end of the funnel. I guess mm-hmm. that's, the, that's kind of the best way of, of negotiating that because everything's a negotiation really once the actor steps on set. Yeah, and negotiations you know, involve involve multiple people, right, by definition. So as long as the actor is truly treating it like a negotiation and working with the people around them, then, you know, and delivering something and letting people bring something through them, then it, it turns out fine. And one of the crucial elements I thought you brought to the character of Tommy is the spoken word. Now, the audience, mm. of course, is, is along for the ride and gets sucked into the character mm. more if this is executed well, but mm. filmmakers, especially indie filmmakers, often the delivery of words and how they are spoken doesn't mm. have the full magnifying attention to detail. Mm. Of course, we can say a line a thousand different ways. There is the speed of the delivery, the pitch, the pausation for effect, the diction, the emphasis of a word. It's clear that words mean a great deal to you, Pip, and Mm. like all of the best performers, you've made something look very difficult, appear easy and natural. (laughs) So what is your process when you're looking at a script and deciding about all of the speaking dialogue and the words? Well, that's a very good question. I suppose it varies from character to character and script to script. I remember years ago, I worked with Anthony Hopkins on Remains of the Day. I don't know if he told me this then or I read about it, but so I remember thinking I'd never worked with anyone who was as fluent and convincing. Obviously, he was genius. And his te- he just reads the script. He just reads the entire script again and again and again and again, and he, he absorbs the whole thing. And I think that's and he's a fantastically natural actor, and certainly in, in Remains of the Day, I thought he should have got another Oscar, but if he hadn't won it the year before, he probably would have got it for that. But it's a great benefit if the script is well-written, as it is in this case, and it's a great benefit if you're playing a character who tends to give, as we were just saying, speeches or synopses on on, on the situation for the benefit of the, the character, the, the, the young queen, and, of course, by extension, the audience, who often need to know this stuff as well. And thinking back to another country, that, that's another beautifully written play. And part of the attraction of doing that when I went to see that play, in fact, friends of mine at drama school said, you should go and see this play because there's a guy in it who's just like you. And he's got all these long speeches and they'd be very good for audition pieces. And at that time, we were all desperately focused on getting out of drama school and, and auditioning for regional theatre companies for which we would need audition speeches. That was the thing. You know, I was like playing lawyers, barristers in courtroom dramas or in courtroom drama scenes because you know you're going to get a great speech. You know you're going to get something theatrical with well-thought-out language in it and it won't just be yes and no and this and that. I love what he says about Anthony Hopkins absorbing the words on the page and like running them over and over again. It's not the first time I've heard that. I've heard Robert Downey Jr. in an interview say that he does the same thing where he'll just day to night like just be reciting the words until they're just internalized. So that they're not thinking about the words where their energy goes into is the delivery as opposed to like remembering what the words were on the page. 
Yeah, I kind of put that down to like an accent. If somebody's doing an accent, they're so concentrated on the accent, but not the performance itself. The accent kind of takes over. And it's a similar thing. If you know those words inside out, you don't have to think about them. They just flow out of you as, as a result of just intimately knowing what the scene is all about. And that's the key, isn't it? Like you, you can know a script, you can know a scene, but do you really know the absolute ins and outs of that scene? And I think that's, that's the difference with somebody like a Anthony Hopkins. Reading it over and over is not enough. You've got to analyze exactly what's going on in the scene. You've got to understand what's going on in the scene, break it down bit by bit by bit. And then you have to work out the performance track of those words and how you're delivering those words. That's what I find so interesting with actors. Mm -hmm. But somebody like me, I really pay a lot of attention to words and how every word is spoken. And that's what got me with Pip Torrens on The Crown. When you watch him deliver his scenes, every single word that he is saying, he's already figured it out in his head how he's going to say it. Yeah, and and I like the point that he also made how good writing really factors into their ability to do that. If it's well written and they don't have to focus on uh, whether or not the words make sense or forcing the words to make sense, they could just say the words as written. Then they can then the actors can focus on the emotionality of the words. And the other important part of delivering the lines is movement. Tommy has a very economical way that he moves. It's precise (laughs) what he is doing. The movement is always in sync with the dialogue. One of my pet peeves is when the body movement doesn't match the dialogue within a scene. An actor might look in a direction that has no bearing on the scene, Mm. or there's a hand movement, a head roll, and suddenly you're kicked out of the scene. The Crown, however, is a masterclass for all of this to indie film directors. So tell us how you have been able to work in the movement of Tommy along with, obviously, the dialogue, which we've just talked about. Well, I suppose with Tommy, any sort of physical movement, just like his emotional movement, if I can use that expression, is about control. And if Tommy has a watchword, it's control and stability i suppose he lectures the the queen several occasions about how important it is that you know we do things just like we've always done them rather like queen mary eileen atkins at one point has this wonderful scene with with claire where she says you've got to claire says i'm doing nothing and and eileen has this scene which says that's the whole point that's what we do you do nothing that's the mystique of the institution and the movement i suppose for tommy the physical movement the physical expression is all conditioned by that control and in fact so many of my scenes took place in very controlled environments. You know, these claustrophobic rooms with Townsend or the, the long conversations. I remember the, the joy of doing those scenes with um, Victoria Hamilton where we're, we're discussing how we're going to manage people. And they, they shot those in Lancaster House, which is this foreign office building. It's a sort of disused palace, I suppose you could say, in, in, in London next to Buckingham Palace, which they just really use for state visits. So it's empty most of the time, but it's about, geez, I don't know, 150, 200 yards long. So you can do a tracking shot or a steady cam shot, which basically never needs to end. So you'd be walking and walking and walking and talking. And, and you know, we'd realize we had a lot more time to say what we were going to say. And there's something delicious about that, the fact that they can show the enormous size and the fact that if we wanted to, we could run around and turn somersaults. And all this sort of space and power that's just referred to. I mean, one of my favorite scenes 
in the whole thing was a scene they shot at Wilton House, southwest of England, which has this extraordinary vast drawing room, which almost looks like the Sistine Chapel. And it was painted, I think, and decorated by Rubens or Van Dyck, I think it was, who, who painted the famous portraits of King Charles I. The whole room looks like a mini Sistine Chapel. It's insanely over-decorated and, and wealthy looking. And they did a scene where I think I'm sitting or someone's sitting and having a, a nice cup of tea with the Queen Mother. And the establishing shot for that is just priceless because it's this vast, great room, these little figures in the corner. And nobody at any point says even, oh, I do like this room or isn't it wonderful? They just take this for granted. So in terms of movement and lack of movement and, and potential power and how, how power is expressed, you know, um, that economy, that control is, is, is very cleverly done, I think. And it makes it more dramatic when people do do, you know, like when Margaret gallops off on horseback to try and escape and can't, you know, and, and, and all that sort of thing. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting, but it's, it's, it's nice always to play buttoned up, restrained characters in that way, because you can, you can imply so much with very little. God, he makes so many good points there about the economy of movement. And of course, you know, it, your, your body is different in different spaces and a good actor is aware of that you know, from one character to the next. So I'm a little bit floored by the idea of them having, being able to do a scene where they can just walk forever and and continue the conversation and, and have freedom to move the way they want to and to drag out the scene because it only comes to mind because I recently had a, a shoot where we had only 12 foot of dolly track and it was okay. a nightmare trying to restrict the actors to condensing their entire conversation within 12 feet of movement and insane jealousy over him describing the conditions that they have on the crown. <laughs> it's actually worthwhile having a look at that. It's series one, and it's on a steady cam, and it is such a beautiful shot. He's walking with the, the Queen Mother, and as he says, they could just keep walking and walking and walking. There is such a distance that they travel as they walk and talk. It's a, it's a beautiful shot, but, yeah, that's the restriction of a dolly dare I say it, you've only got so much room of track. Yeah, yeah. And what he was saying about how you could do somersaults if you wanted to in this, mm. if you think about it, like as just a person who's not acting in a scene, when you're in a grand space, you do move your body differently. You do spread yourself out a little bit more for an actor to be aware of that. If, you know, they're a character in a, in a large space, would that character take advantage of all that room it's always fascinating to hear how actors involve their environment in their craft. You know, in terms of less is more, less is more with the movement as well. I always like an actor to start with the less is more approach in terms of body movement, mm -hmm. because so often with actors that are still learning their craft, there can be looks in the wrong direction. You just have that head roll to the left or to the right where it doesn't make sense. It completely sort of blows your shot. So I like to work in the V situation where nobody is looking hard left or hard right. Try and keep it in a V. That way, at least you're minimizing some of those hard turns. But yeah, minimalistic type movement on set from actors. And then if you need to punch it a little bit more, in terms of body movement, you can always work it up, but I, I don't like too much movement, you know, from well, from yeah. the beginning. And from a technical standpoint also, like depending on the lens you're using, right, like your focus could be really shallow. And if they just stray way far off their mark in any direction, then you're making it really tough on your, your first assistant camera. 
Have you heard that story about maybe Hollywood hearsay about how difficult it was to work with Crispin Glover on the first Back to the Future, the guy that plays Marty McFly's father, George McFly, mm -hmm. because of how animated he was and how like it was impossible to predict where he would be walking or like, you know, throwing his limbs about. It just became a nightmare for the people behind the camera to have to yeah. to have to track. The technical aspect is is a serious consideration. And sometimes the writing can come down to a single word, but then the actor has to execute the word. When Tommy is hauling Martin over the yeah. coals for trying to skip protocols for taking his job after Tommy yeah. retires, Tommy yeah. says to Martin, look, you've worked here for three years. Mm. I would have thought that long enough for you to know the ropes, understand the rules, the way mm. things are done. As Tommy is saying that, you can feel what is coming. And Martin just falls into the trap by saying, I think I do. And then Tommy, slowly looking up from his desk, says, manifestly, manifestly not. Manifestly not. No, beautiful, beautiful choice of, of, of words. Because, you know, manifestly sim simply means, you know, you have demonstrated, you know, Tommy could have said that in so many other ways, just as manifestly not, <laughs> meaning, you know, you, you've just, I know exactly what you've been doing. And, and you know, the, the, it's, it's clearly the case that you have done the exact opposite of what you should have done, given your three years experience. But instead of saying all that, just as you say, manifestly not conveys the whole thing. And you can hear Pip as he's recounting the story, just how, how cool that little scene was. He had to deliver it as well, which he just did so well. Oh, so juicy. I can I can see how an actor would come across a line like that on a script and just get excited about how they're going to deliver that powerful, poignant, economical line. And Jennifer, you told me before we started this podcast that you have not seen any of The Crown. Mm, none, none of it. Guilty as charged. Pip will be listening to this. Is there any apology you'd like to oh. give Pip? Pip, please, I'm on my knees. <laughs> Forgive me for this great oversight. I, and I mean that I know I sound facetious, but I do know it's a must watch. Everybody around me has watched it, is fanatical about the show. This is a great failure on my part. I'm fully acknowledging of that fact. <laughs> okay, well, I think apology accepted. But yes, there, there's just <laughs> so much production value, the writing, the acting, it's, it's very, very good. Now, to wind up, Jennifer, we've got one more little piece that I share with Pat. Well, here's a true or false question. I have flown with Queen Elizabeth II. True or false? I, I'm going to guess that that's true, Craig. Yeah, so this is from <laughs> this is from the Telegraph newspaper in 1995. A lot of people uh -huh. won't realize this, so I've pulled it up to read it out. Queen Elizabeth II broke with tradition by taking a regular commercial airliner to New Zealand, spending 25 hours in the air in a specially equipped first-class compartment. The mm. trip was believed to be the first by a British monarch on a commercial flight. Wow. First class had been fitted with a bed and a table and chairs. 26 Ooh. of the Queen's staff flew in business class, and yep. there were 384 regular fare-paying customers in economy class. The decision to take a scheduled commercial flight rather than use a special royal plane was made to save money for the New Zealand government. 
even after reserving the entire first class and business class, the trip cost less than half the estimated £600,000. Oh so there God. you go. Wow. And you were on that flight? I was on the flight going back from New yeah. Zealand. Obviously, flying with the Queen for that amount of time in an aircraft was very strange. I remember us landing in Los Angeles and everybody looking out the windows to the police cars. There was about five or six police vehicles on either side as the plane came into the gate. And mm. then we flew off to Heathrow from L.A., the plane was full of Germans, so the plane was bound for Frankfurt. It was a really interesting yeah. trip. So it landed at Heathrow. She was the only one that got off, and then we carried on to Frankfurt. So. Wow. Wow. It's a great quiz question, Craig. That's, that's one to keep in your back pocket. Well, on that note, Pip, it's been a real eye-opener as a working actor at the top of your craft and all of the insights that you have offered us today on the Netflix series. Thank you, Craig. I've had a really good time. It was great fun. And, and thanks for all your intelligent and very probing questions. You've been listening to The Film Podcast with Craig Newland, your weekly podcast about all things behind the camera and in front of it. Until next time, have a great week.